You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Well, what a great text to feature on the lower north shore of Sydney. Here we are living in an area that's undisputably regarded as one of the most wealthy areas in the whole of Sydney. And here's Jesus. Here's this key verse, verse 23 of Mark 10. How hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that's a great verse to build a bridge of friendship, isn't it? In a lucrative, very affluent area. I mean, many people in this area are quite wealthy. So why did Jesus say that? What did he mean by that? Well, we've got to get it into context. In the preceding verses, Jesus has an encounter with the man who's become known as the rich young ruler. Uh, Many of you know this incident. Uh, He's the one who came up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus rattled off a few commandments. Uh, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. And the young man was able to look Jesus right in the eye and say, well, I've managed to obey all of those. Now, he must have been, he must have been the real deal because Jesus didn't say, right, pull the other leg, you know, nobody's that good. No, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus looked at the man with great love, with great admiration, with great respect. But in doing so, our Lord could see something that was a problem for this guy. He could see the difficulty this man was facing. You see, his problem was his total trust and reliance on his wealth as his source of identity and his source of security. He not only had wealth, he was totally wrapped up in it. He was totally absorbed by it. So Jesus then issues his now famous challenge to the man, verse 21, go and sell all, you've ha- all you have, give the money to the poor, come and follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. Now this instruction is not prescriptive for everybody. It's not a prerequisite for following Jesus, selling all you have. But it was important for this man to test his level of sincerity, his level of trust, ultimately to test his level of faith. And as we know, the story ends rather sadly because the man turns away and he rejects the offer of Jesus for eternal life. I mean, he obviously believed Jesus had that power. He turns away and rejects that offer. It's it's like the the old knight in that... um, uh, in that Indiana Jones movie, it was the Temple of Doom, you know, where the knight turns to Indiana Jones and after this guy's disappeared, a bit evaporated, he says, he chose poorly. And uh, that's kind of what happens here. The guy chooses poorly. So it's in response to that man's rejection of eternal life that Jesus, with doubtless a, a heavy heart and with sadness in his voice, he says how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Now, friends, he's not talking about the amount of their wealth. He's talking about their dependence on their wealth. That's what he's talking about. Their their reliance on their wealth for security and identity. But then what follows is an extraordinary, uh, it's quite extraordinary rather, the disciples are stunned by the words of Jesus. The Bible says they're amazed and they ask, well, who then can be saved? Now, that's a... That's an amazing question when you think about it. I mean, we can understand what Jesus is saying. You know, wealth can be an impediment to people 
responding to the gospel because wealth creates a certain level of self-sufficiency. Wealth in some cases can distort people's spiritual values and throw their moral compass out of whack. We can understand. We would have little trouble in agreeing with some of what Jesus is saying. But the disciples, they were coming from a background where it was believed that wealth, prosperity, position, power, these were indicators of God's favour. These were indicators of heightened righteousness and moral integrity. If you were rich, you were really in God's favour. And so their question is, well, who can be saved? You can understand against that background. In response, in verse 27, Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then this prompts, we're sort of unpacking this, this incredible passage. This prompts a very provocative comment from Peter, verse 28. He says, look, we've left everything. We've left everything and followed you. Now, friends, I take that. I take that to mean, okay, Lord, if you're saying that wealth and prestige are no longer significant in salvation, then where does it leave those of us who are following you in poverty and humility. Where does it leave us? Like, like what's in it for us? If wealth and prosperity are out of the equation, we've always thought they were, but if they're out, well, where does it leave us? And this is where it gets quite shocking. <laughs> if you listen to the reading brought to us by Hannah, it gets really quite astounding here because Jesus says, yes, Jesus said to them, and I tell you that those who leave home or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children, or property for me and the gospel, will receive much more in this present age, right now. They will receive a hundred times more houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, and persecutions as well. And in the age to come, they'll receive eternal life. Wow, receive a hundred times more houses, brothers, sisters, Children, property. How do we reconcile these statements from Jesus? On the one hand, saying how difficult it is for a a wealthy person to enter the kingdom, while at the same time appearing to be promising incredible wealth and prosperity to those who choose to follow him. I mean, did Jesus really say this? It, It just seems very confusing. Well, friends, there is an explanation. And I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but here it is if you haven't heard it before. The starting point is we've got to forget our Western mindset of individualism. That's the first step. We've got to to try to forget for a moment the, the, the incredible emphasis we have in this country and in this Western world on private ownership. That's the first thing. We have to go back in time, back to the first century, and back to the radical thinking being taught by Jesus and ultimately being embraced by the early church. And there are a couple of clues here. One of them is in Matthew chapter 12. You might like to check this when you, during the week when you get home. Matthew chapter 12. This is the part where Jesus receives a visit from his mother and his brothers. He's in full flight teaching and preaching in a house. And the word comes to him, oh, your mother and your brothers are outside, want to see you. And it's, it's not sure why they've come to see Jesus. Some commentators have speculated that It was out of concern. Jesus is really putting the foot down on claiming to be the Messiah and making all sorts of claims for himself. And they're a little bit concerned that they can see the tension against him building and they're concerned and they're they're there to try to, you know, calm him down a little bit. 
So for Jesus, it's one of those, you know, get behind me Satan kind of moments. You know, you're, you're hindering my work. You're, you're getting in the way. And so when he's told your mother and brothers want to see you, this is his extraordinary response in Matthew chapter 12, verse 56. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he pointed to the disciples and he said, look, here is my mother and my brothers. Now, of course, Jesus loved his mother and his brothers. That's, that's a given. He loved his family. But at the same time, he had a commitment to his ministry and his mission, which took priority over anyone, including family, if they didn't share the vision. That's what seeking first the kingdom of God is about. His, his sense of mission and ministry was so intense that if people didn't share that vision, even family, they took second place. In that sense, his, his new family were the disciples and those actively involved in participating in the work of the kingdom. And, and Jesus states it here in the second part of this verse, verse 56, whoever does what, the, what my father in heaven wants him to do is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, friends, this is the radical community the radical community Jesus was establishing. It ties in with what we were saying last week, for those of you who were here, about the disciples' willingness to count the cost, to leave it behind, to not look back. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that this Matthew passage provides a clue as to what Jesus was referring to when he talked about the rewards of discipleship. We turn to Acts for the second clue. And it's uh, over in Acts chapter 2 for a start, verses 44 to 45. The day of Pentecost has happened. The church has been born. There's uh, incredible stuff happening. Uh, spectacular events, of course, on the day of Pentecost. And then here's a description of life in the early church as it was taking shape in Jerusalem. Now, we know these words, many of us, but try to see these words in a fresh light. Look at them through fresh eyes from Acts chapter 2. Look at this. All the believers continued together. In close fellowship, they shared their belongings with one another. They would sell their property and possessions, distribute the money among all according to what each one needed. And there's an even more detailed description in, in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Look at this. The group of believers was, in, was, was one in mind and heart. None of them said that any of their belongings were their own. They all shared with one another everything they had. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God poured rich blessings on them all. There was no one in the group who was in need. Did you get that? There was no one in the group who was in need. Those who owned land or houses would sell them, bring the money received from the sale, hand it to the disciples, and the money was distributed according to the needs of the people. Now, friends, not surprisingly, not surprisingly, this level of extreme generosity and genuine compassion was one of the key elements in the growth of the first century church. Of course, I mean, people had never experienced, they'd never seen such outrageous selflessness. It was unbelievable. All driven and motivated by a response, or in response rather, to God's extreme generosity in sending Jesus. As John would say years later in his epistle, if this is how God loves us, how should we love one another? That was motivated by that response to God because of his love. What it meant in real terms for someone like Peter, right, 
who's left everything, what it meant for him was entry into a world where houses, practical support, resources of all kind, even financial help, were now available to him in an unprecedented way. And so here's Jesus in Mark 10, foreshadowing what he knew would be the case once his church was established. He knew that. He knew this would be a spirit-led, selfless, super generous body of believers doing life together in the work of the kingdom, passionately driven with a desire to see that work flourish. And so his, his words again, back there in, in, in Mark chapter 10, look what he says. Yes, Jesus said, I tell you, those who leave home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for me and the gospel will receive much more in this present age. They'll receive a hundred times more houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property. Well, all of this begs the question, what does this mean for us? This is a radical community. What does this mean for us in a contemporary 21st century setting where individualism is more pronounced within our society than it's ever been. It's more entrenched than ever. What does it mean for us? Well, guys, the short answer is we need to be different. That's the first thing. We do need to be different. You see, we, we're the members of the body of Christ and we are meant to demonstrate in tangible ways our love, our care, our support of each other and for anyone in need. That's the new way. When we're following Jesus. And you know what? In my role as a pastor, I see this all the time. I really do. I've said from this platform many times, Christians don't have exclusive rights to generosity and compassion. That's the reality. We just don't. But you'll be hard pressed to find a group anywhere in the community which demonstrates these qualities with the eagerness and the consistency of a local church. It's just been my experience over a lifetime of ministry. You'll go a long way to find a group that will express these qualities, compassion, generosity, as consistently as the people of God, where, where they've been impacted by the Spirit of God with a deep desire to serve and to bless whenever and wherever possible. Like, look, we see it here at Northside. Uh, virtually on a, on a weekly, on a daily basis. Do you know there are people in this church, I'm not going to embarrass them by naming them, people in this church who will open up their home at the drop of a hat for anybody who's in need. There are several of them. One, one couple in particular. And some of you have been on the receiving end of their generosity. And it just, it, it's, it's touching, it's moving. That's, 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 where, that's how it is. Those people have had, they open up their homes in that way. People here give enormous chunks of their time and their gifts to support our ministry in various ways. The Glebe Project, the, the Madagascar we've talked about, Bathurst that's coming up in the, in the second half of the year. Uh, anybody who serves in any way to further our cause here, which ultimately everything we do here ultimately touches lives. And people just give so generously. And when it comes to money, do you know one of the things about a church like Northside that really amazes brand new Christians, people who haven't ever had any experience in the church, and I've seen this many times over the years, one of the things that amazes them is the amount of money we raise each week. I mean, it's, it's well documented. It's well in excess of $10,000 on average per week. And when people come to Christ and they've been used to giving $5 to World Vision every year or maybe giving $50 to an annual telethon, that sort of money just staggers them from a a comparatively small group of people. 
There are people here in this church who give hundreds of dollars per week to the ministry of this church. And many others who give amounts that are much smaller, but the amounts are representative of real sacrifice in terms of income, in some cases 10%. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And when it comes to the financial sacrifices that were made to allow this ministry complex to be built and established in excess of $1 million over and above offerings, we may never know the holidays that were cancelled. We may never know the purchases that were delayed or abandoned. Look, friends, the Church of Jesus Christ, when it's in full flight in pursuit of a God-inspired mission, is a very powerful entity. You think about that. The Church of Jesus Christ, when it's in full flight, motivated by a desire to serve and to witness, it's a pretty powerful entity. This is the family we belong to. This is the inheritance, according to Jesus, we have here and now. This is the body of believers so many people benefit from. Through services and ministries and support and aid and practical help and compassion. What a privilege. What a responsibility is ours who name the name of Jesus. I like to think of it this way. The church isn't where we meet. It isn't a building. The church is what we do. The church is who we are. Church is the human expression of the person of Christ. And in the final analysis, we don't go to church. We are the church. With no tangible rewards this side of heaven, other than a beautifully generous, incredibly hospitable, service oriented band of brothers and sisters with whom we do life. That's the only tangible reward this side of heaven. But what more do you need? What more do you need than that? It's fantastic. The Church of Jesus Christ. There are homes open to all of us anywhere around the world. The hospitality of Madagascar team gets up there in Madagascar. Homes, family, multiplied because of our oneness in Jesus Christ. So friends, be the church this week. You've come to church today, but you haven't really. You are the church. Be the church out there. It's our privilege each and every week. May God give us the strength and the, and the motivation to do just that. Let's pray.